Second section of Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysics of Morals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysic of Morals by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott. Second section. Transition from Popular Moral Philosophy to the Metaphysic of Morals. If we have hitherto drawn our notion of duty from the common use of our practical reason, it is by no means to be inferred that we have treated it as an empirical notion. On the contrary, if we attend to the experience of men's conduct, we meet frequent, and, as we ourselves allow, just complaints that one cannot find a single certain example of the disposition to act from pure duty. Although many things are done in conformity with what duty prescribes, it is nevertheless always doubtful whether they are done strictly from duty, so as to have a moral worth. Hence there have at all times been philosophers who have altogether denied that this disposition actually exists at all in human actions, and have ascribed everything to a more or less refined self-love. Not that they have on that account questioned the soundness of the conception of morality, on the contrary, they spoke with sincere regret of the frailty and corruption of human nature, which, though noble enough to take its rule, an idea so worthy of respect, is yet weak to follow it, and employs reason, which ought to give it the law only for the purpose of providing for the interest of the inclinations, whether singly or at the best in the greatest possible harmony with one another. In fact, it is absolutely impossible to make out by experience with complete certainty a single case in which the maxim of an action, however right in itself, rested simply on moral grounds and on the conception of duty. Sometimes it happens that with the sharpest self-examination we can find nothing beside the moral principle of duty which could have been powerful enough to move us to this or that action and to so great a sacrifice yet we cannot from this infer with certainty that it was not really some secret impulse of self-love under the false appearance of duty that was the actual determining cause of the will we like them to flatter ourselves by falsely taking credit for a more noble motive whereas in fact we can never even by the strictest examination get completely behind the secret springs of action since when the question is of moral worth it is not with the actions which we see that we are concerned, but with those inward principles of them which we do not see. Moreover, we cannot better serve the wishes of those who ridicule all morality as a mere chimera of human imagination, overstepping itself from vanity, than by conceding to them that notions of duty must be drawn only from experience. As from indolence, people are ready to think is also the case with all other notions. For this is to prepare for them a certain triumph. I am willing to admit, out of love of humanity, that even most of our actions are correct, but if we look closer at them, we everywhere come upon the dear self which is always prominent, and it is this they have in view, and not the strict command of duty, which would often require self-denial. Without being an enemy of virtue, a cool observer, one that does not mistake the wish for good, however lively, for its reality, may sometimes doubt whether true virtue 
is actually found anywhere in the world, and this especially as years increase, and the judgment is partly made wiser by experience, and partly also more acute in observation. This being so, nothing can secure us from falling away altogether from our ideas of duty, or maintain in the soul a well-grounded respect for its law, but the clear conviction that although there should never have been actions which really sprang from such pure sources, yet whether this or that takes place is not at all the question, but that reason of itself, independent on all experience, ordains what ought to take place, that accordingly actions of which perhaps the world has hitherto never given an example, the feasibility even of which might be very much doubted by one who founds everything on experience, are nevertheless inflexibly commanded by reason. That, for example, even though there might never yet have been a sincere friend, yet not a whit the less is pure sincerity and friendship required of every man, because, prior to all experience, this duty is involved as duty in the idea of a reason determining the will by a priori principles. When we add further that, unless we deny that the notion of morality has any truth or reference to any possible object, we must admit that its law must be valid, not merely for men, but for all rational creatures generally, not merely under certain contingent conditions, or with exceptions, but with absolute necessity, then it is clear that no experience could enable us to infer even the possibility of such apodeictic laws. For with what right could we bring into unbounded respect as a universal precept for every rational nature that which perhaps holds only under the contingent conditions of humanity? Or how could laws of the determination of our will be regarded as laws of the determination of the will of rational beings generally, and for us only as such, if they were merely empirical, and did not take their origin wholly a priori from pure but practical reason. Nor could anything be more fatal to morality than that we should wish to derive it from examples. For every example of it that is set before me must be first itself tested by principles of morality, whether it is worthy to serve as an original example, that is, as a pattern. But by no means can it authoritatively furnish the conception of morality. Even the holy one of the Gospels must first be compared with our ideal of moral perfection before we can recognize him as such. And so he says of himself, Why call ye me whom you see good? None is good, the model of good, but God only, whom ye do not see. But whence have we the conception of God as the supreme good? Simply from the idea of moral perfection, which reason frames a priori, and connects inseparably with the notion of a free will. Imitation finds no place at all in morality, and examples serve only for encouragement, that is, they put beyond doubt the feasibility of what the law commands. They make visible that which the practical rule expresses more generally, but they can never authorize us to set aside the true original which lies in reason, and to guide ourselves by examples. If, then, there is no genuine supreme principle of morality but what must rest simply on pure reason, independent of all experience, I think it is not necessary 
even to put the question whether it is good to exhibit these concepts in their generality, in abstracto, as they are established a priori along with the principles belonging to them, if our knowledge is to be distinguished from the vulgar and to be called philosophical. In our times, indeed, this might perhaps be necessary, for if we collected votes whether pure rational knowledge separated from everything empirical, that is to say, metaphysic of morals, or whether popular practical philosophy is to be preferred, it is easy to guess which side would preponderate. This descending to popular notions is certainly very commendable if the ascent to the principles of pure reason has first taken place and been satisfactorily accomplished. This implies that we first found ethics on metaphysics, and then, when it is firmly established, procure a hearing for it by giving it a popular character. But it is quite absurd to try to be popular in the first inquiry, on which the soundness of the principles depends. It is not only that this proceeding can never lay claim to the very rare merit of a true philosophical popularity, since there is no art in being intelligible if one renounces all thoroughness of insight, but also it produces a disgusting medley of compiled observations and half-reasoned principles. Shallow pates enjoy this, because it can be used for everyday chat, but the sagacious find in it only confusion, and being unsatisfied and unable to help themselves, they turn away their eyes, while philosophers, who see quite well through this delusion, are little listened to when they call men off for a time from this pretended popularity, in order that they might be rightfully popular after they have attained a definite insight. We need only look at the attempts of moralists in that favoured fashion, and we shall find at one time the special constitution of human nature, including, however, the idea of a rational nature generally, at one time perfection, at another happiness, here moral sense, there fear of God, a little of this and a little of that, a marvellous mixture, without its occurring to them to ask whether the principles of morality are to be sought in the knowledge of human nature at all, which we can have only from experience. Or, if this is not so, if these principles are to be found altogether a priori, free from everything empirical, in pure rational concepts only and nowhere else, not even in the smallest degree, then rather to adopt the method of making this a separate inquiry as pure practical philosophy, or, if one may use a name so decried, as metaphysic of morals, to bring it by itself to completeness, and to require the public, which wishes for popular treatment, to await the issue of this undertaking. Footnote. Just as pure mathematics are distinguished from applied, pure logic from applied, so, if we choose, we may also distinguish pure philosophy of morals, metaphysic, from applied, that is, applied to human nature. By this designation we are also at once reminded that moral principles are not based on properties of human nature, but must subsist a priori of themselves, while from such principles practical rules must be capable of being deduced for every rational nature, and accordingly for that of man. And footnote. Such a metaphysic of morals, completely isolated, not mixed with any anthropology, theology, physics, or hyperphysics, and still less with occult qualities, which we might call hypophysical, 
is not only an indispensable substratum of all sound theoretical knowledge of duties, but is at the same time a desideratum of the highest importance to the actual fulfilment of their precepts. For the pure conception of duty, unmixed with any foreign addition of empirical attractions, and, in a word, the conception of the moral law, exercises on the human heart by way of reason alone, which first becomes aware with this that it can of itself be practical. An influence so much more powerful than all other springs, which may be derived from the field of experience, that, in the consciousness of its worth, it despises the latter, and can by degrees become their master. Whereas a mixed ethics, compounded partly of motives drawn from feelings and inclinations, and partly also of conceptions of reason, must make the mind waver between motives which cannot be brought under any principle, which lead to good only by mere accident, and very often also to evil. Footnote. I have a letter from the late excellent Sulzer, in which he asks me what can be the reason that moral instruction, although containing much that is convincing for the reason, yet accomplishes so little. My answer was postponed in order that I might make it complete, but it is simply this, that the teachers themselves have not got their own notions clear, and when they endeavour to make up for this by raking up motives of moral goodness from every quarter, trying to make their physic right strong, they spoil it. For the commonest understanding shows that if we imagine, on the one hand, an act of honesty done with steadfast mind, apart from every view to advantage of any kind in this world or another, and even under the greatest temptations of necessity or allurement, and, on the other hand, a similar act which was effected, in however low a degree, by a foreign motive, the former leaves far behind and eclipses the second. It elevates the soul and inspires the wish to be able to act in like manner oneself. Even moderately young children feel this impression, and one should never represent duties to them in any other light. End footnote. From what has been said, it is clear that all moral conceptions have their seat and origin completely a priori in the reason, and that, moreover, in the commonest reason, just as truly as in that which is in the highest degree speculative, that they cannot be obtained by abstraction from any empirical, and therefore merely contingent, knowledge, that it is just this purity of their origin that makes them worthy to serve as our supreme practical principle, and that just in proportion as we add anything empirical, we detract from their genuine influence and from the absolute value of actions, that it is not only of the greatest necessity in a purely speculative point of view, but is also of the greatest practical importance to derive these notions and laws from pure reason, to present them pure and unmixed, and even to determine the compass of this practical or pure rational knowledge, that is, to determine the whole faculty of pure practical reason, and, in doing so, we must not make its principles dependent on the particular nature of human reason, though in speculative philosophy this may be permitted, or may even at times be necessary. But since moral laws ought to hold good for every rational creature, we must derive them from the general concept of a rational being. In this way, although for its application to man morality has need of anthropology, yet in the first instance we must treat it independently as pure philosophy, that is, as metaphysic, complete in itself. 
a thing which in such distinct branches of science is easily done. Knowing well that unless we are in possession of this, it would not only be vain to determine the moral element of duty in right actions for purposes of speculative criticism, but it would be impossible to base morals on their genuine principles, even for common practical purposes, especially of moral instruction, so as to produce pure moral dispositions, and to engraft them on men's minds to the promotion of the greatest possible good in the world. But in order that in this study we may not merely advance by the natural steps from the common moral judgment, in this case very worthy of respect, to the philosophical, as has been already done, but also from a popular philosophy, which goes no further than it can reach by groping with the help of examples, to metaphysic, which does allow itself to be checked by anything empirical, and, as it must measure the whole extent of this kind of rational knowledge, goes as far as ideal conceptions where even examples fail us, we must follow and clearly describe the practical faculty of reason, from the general rules of its determination to the point where the notion of duty springs from it. Everything in nature works according to laws. Rational beings alone have the faculty of acting according to the conception of laws, that is, according to principles, that is, have a will. Since the deduction of actions from principles requires reason, the will is nothing but practical reason. If reason infallibly determines the will, then the actions of such a being which are recognized as objectively necessary are subjectively necessary also. That is, the will is a faculty to choose that only which reason, independent of inclination, recognizes as practically necessary, that is, as good. But if reason of itself does not sufficiently determine the will, if the latter is subject also to subjective conditions, particular impulses, which do not always coincide with the objective conditions, in a word, if the will does not in itself completely accord with reason, which is actually the case with men, then the actions which objectively are recognized as necessary are subjectively contingent, and the determination of such a will according to objective laws is obligation, that is to say, the relation of the objective laws to a will that is not thoroughly good, is conceived as the determination of the will of a rational being by principles of reason, but which the will from its nature does not of necessity follow. The conception of an objective principle, in so far as it is obligatory for a will, is called a command of a reason, and the formula of the command is called an imperative. All imperatives are expressed by the word ought, or shall, and thereby indicate the relation of an objective law of reason to a will, which from its subjective constitution is not necessarily determined by it, an obligation. They say that something would be good to do or to forbear, but they say it to a will which does not always do a thing because it is conceived to be good to do it. That is practically good, however, which determines the will by means of the conceptions of reason, and consequently not from subjective causes, but objectively, that is, on principles which are valid for every rational being as such. It is distinguished from the pleasant, as that which influences the will only by means of sensation from merely subjective causes, 
valid only for the sense of this or that one, and not as a principle of reason, which holds for every one. Footnote. The dependence of the desires on sensations is called inclination, and this accordingly always indicates a want. The dependence of a contingently determinable will on principles of reason is called an interest. This, therefore, is found only in the case of a dependent will which does not always of itself conform to reason. In the divine will we cannot conceive any interest. But the human will can also take an interest in a thing, without therefore acting from interest. The former signifies the practical interest in the action, the latter the pathological in the object of the action. The former indicates only dependence of the will on principles of reason in themselves, the second dependence on principles of reason for the sake of inclination, reason supplying only the practical rules how the requirement of the inclination may be satisfied. In the first case the action interests me, in the second the object of the action, because it is pleasant to me. We have seen in the first section that in an action done from duty we must look not to the interest in the object, but only to that in the action itself, and in its rational principle, that is, the law. A perfectly good will would therefore be equally subject to objective laws, that is, laws of good, but could not be conceived as obliged thereby to act lawfully, because of itself, from its subjective constitution, it can only be determined by the conception of good. Therefore, no imperatives hold for the divine will, or in general for a holy will. Ought is here out of place, because the volition is already of itself necessarily in unison with the law. Therefore, imperatives are only formulae to express the relation of objective laws of all volition to the subjective imperfection of the will of this or that rational being, for example, the human will. Now, all imperatives command either hypothetically or categorically. The former represent the practical necessity of a possible action as means to something else that is willed, or at least which one might possibly will. The categorical imperative would be that which represented an action as necessary of itself without reference to another end, that is, as objectively necessary. Since every practical law represents a possible action as good, and on this account, for a subject who is practically determinable by reason, necessary. All imperatives are formally determining an action which is necessary, according to the principle of a will, good in some respects. If now the action is good only as a means to something else, then the imperative is hypothetical. If it is conceived as good in itself, and consequently as being necessarily the principle of a will, which of itself conforms to reason, then it is categorical. Thus the imperative declares what action possible by me would be good, and presents the practical rule in relation to a will which does not forthwith perform an action simply because it is good, whether because the subject does not always know that it is good, or because, even if it know this, yet its maxims might be opposed to the objective principles of practical reason. Accordingly, the hypothetical imperative only says that the action is good for some purpose, possible or actual. In the first case, it is a problematical, in the second an assertorial practical principle. The categorical imperative, which declares an action to be objectively necessary in itself, without reference to any purpose, 
that is, without any other end, is valid as an apodeictic, practical principle. Whatever is possible only by the power of some rational being may also be conceived as a possible purpose of some will, and therefore the principles of action as regards the means necessary to attain some possible purpose are in fact infinitely numerous. All sciences have a practical part, consisting of problems expressing that some end is possible for us, and of imperatives directing how it may be attained. These may therefore be called in general imperatives of skill. Here there is no question whether the end is rational and good, but only what one must do in order to attain it. The precepts for the physician to make his patient thoroughly healthy, and for a poisoner to ensure certain death, are of equal value in this respect that each serves to effect its purpose perfectly. Since in early youth it cannot be known what ends are likely to occur to us in the course of life, parents seek to have their children taught a great many things, and provide for their skill in the use of means for all sorts of arbitrary ends, of none of which can they determine whether it may not perhaps hereafter be an object to their pupil, but which it is at all events possible that he might aim at and this anxiety is so great that they commonly neglect to form and correct their judgment on the value of the things which may be chosen as ends. There is one end, however, which may be assumed to be actually such to all rational beings, so far as imperatives apply to them, that is, as dependent beings. And, therefore, one purpose which they not merely may have, but which we may with certainty assume that they all actually have by a natural necessity and this is happiness. The hypothetical imperative which expresses the practical necessity of an action as means to the advancement of happiness is assertorial. We are not to present it as necessary for an uncertain and merely possible purpose, but for a purpose which we may presuppose with certainty and a priori in every man, because it belongs to his being. Now skill in the choice of means to his own greatest well-being may be called prudence, in the narrowest sense. Footnote. The word prudence is taken in two senses. In the one it may bear the name of knowledge of the world, in the other that of private prudence. The former is a man's ability to influence others so as to use them for his own purposes. The latter is the sagacity to combine all these purposes for his own lasting benefit. This latter is properly that to which the value even of the former is reduced, and when a man is prudent in the former sense, but not in the latter, we might better say of him that he is clever and cunning, but, on the whole, imprudent. End footnote. And thus the imperative which refers to the choice of means to one's own happiness, that is, the precept of prudence, is still always hypothetical. The action is not commanded absolutely, but only as means to another purpose. Finally, there is an imperative which commands a certain conduct immediately, without having as its condition any other purpose to be attained by it. This imperative is categorical. It concerns not the matter of the action or its intended result, but its form and the principle of which it is itself a result. And what is essentially good in it consists in the mental disposition, let the consequence be what it may. This imperative may be called that of morality. There is a marked distinction also between the volitions on these three sorts of principles in the dissimilarity of the obligation of the will. In order to mark this difference more clearly, 
I think they would be most suitably named in their order, if we said they are either rules of skill, or counsels of prudence, or commands, laws, of morality. For it is law only that involves the conception of an unconditional and objective necessity, which is consequently universally valid. And commands are laws which must be obeyed, that is, must be followed, even in opposition to inclination. Councils, indeed, involve necessity, but one which can only hold under a contingent subjective condition, that is, they depend on whether this or that man reckons this or that as part of his happiness. The categorical imperative, on the contrary, is not limited by any condition, and as being absolutely, although practically, necessary, may be quite properly called a command. We might also call the first kind of imperatives technical, belonging to art, the second pragmatic, to welfare, the third moral, belonging to free conduct generally, that is, to morals. Footnote. It seems to me that the proper signification of the word pragmatic may be most accurately defined in this way, for sanctions are called pragmatic which flow properly not from the law of the states as necessary enactments, but from precaution for the general welfare. A history is composed pragmatically when it teaches prudence, that is, instructs the world how it can provide for its interests better, or at least as well as, the men of former time. End footnote. Now arises the question, how are all these imperatives possible? This question does not seek to know how we can conceive the accomplishment of the action which the imperative ordains, but merely how we can conceive the obligation of the will which the imperative expresses. No special explanation is needed to show how an imperative of skill is possible. Whoever wills the end wills also, so far as reason decides his conduct, the means in his power which are indispensably necessary thereto. This proposition is, as regards the volition, analytical, for, in willing an object as my effect, there is already thought the causality of myself as an acting cause, that is to say, the use of the means, and the imperative educes from the conception of volition of an end, the conception of actions necessary to this end. Synthetical propositions must no doubt be employed in defining the means to a proposed end, but they do not concern the principle, the act of the will, but the object and its realization. For example, that in order to bisect a line on an unerring principle, I must draw from its extremities two intersecting arcs. This no doubt is taught by mathematics only in synthetical propositions, but if I know that it is only by this process that the intended operation can be performed, then to say that if I fully will the operation, I also will the action required for it, is an analytical proposition for it is one and the same thing to conceive something as an effect which I can produce in a certain way, and to conceive myself as acting in this way. If it were only equally easy to give a definite conception of happiness, the imperatives of prudence would correspond exactly with those of skill, and would likewise be analytical. For in this case, as in that, it could be said, whoever wills the end wills also, according to the dictate of reason necessarily, the indispensable means thereto which are in his power. But, unfortunately, the notion of happiness is so indefinite that although every man wishes to attain it, yet he never can say definitely and consistently what it is that he really wishes and wills. 
The reason of this is that all the elements which belong to the notion of happiness are altogether empirical, that is, they must be borrowed from experience, and nevertheless the idea of happiness requires an absolute whole, a maximum of welfare in my present and all future circumstances. Now it is impossible that the most clear-sighted and at the same time most powerful being, supposed finite, should frame to himself a definite conception of what he really wills in this. Does he will riches? How much anxiety, envy, and snares might he not thereby draw upon his shoulders? Does he will knowledge and discernment? Perhaps it might prove to be only an eye so much the sharper to show him, so much the more fearfully, the evils that are now concealed from him, and that cannot be avoided, or to impose more wants on his desires, which already give him concern enough. Would he have long life? Who guarantees to him that it would not be a long misery? Would he at least have health? How often has uneasiness of the body restrained from excesses into which perfect health would have allowed one to fall? And so on. In short, he is unable, on any principle, to determine with certainty what would make him truly happy, because to do so he would need to be omniscient. We cannot therefore act on any definite principles to secure happiness, but only on empirical counsels, for example, of regimen, frugality, curtsy, reserve, etc., which experience teaches do, on the average, most promote well-being. Hence it follows that the imperatives of prudence do not, strictly speaking, command at all, that is, they cannot present actions objectively as practically necessary, that they are rather to be regarded as counsels, concilia, than precepts, precepti, of reason that the problem to determine certainly and universally what action would promote the happiness of a rational being is completely insoluble, and consequently no imperative respecting it is possible which should, in the strict sense, command to do what makes happy, because happiness is not an ideal of reason, but of imagination, resting solely on empirical grounds, and it is vain to expect that these should define an action by which one could attain the totality of a series of consequences which is really endless. This imperative of prudence would, however, be an analytical proposition if we assume that the means to happiness could be certainly assigned, for it is distinguished from the imperative of skill only by this, that in the latter the end is merely possible, in the former it is given. As, however, both only ordain the means to that which we suppose to be willed as an end, it follows that the imperative which ordains the willing of the means to him who wills the end is in both cases analytical. Thus there is no difficulty in regard to the possibility of an imperative of this kind either. End of section 2